This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison here. I'm the producer of this podcast and also The Bunker. And welcome to Now That's What I Call Oh God What Now, our end-of-year best bits compilation to tide you over the long, dark days between Christmas and New Year. We've had a lot of great moments and fantastic guests in what I'm sure you'll agree has been a very weird year. Back in March, we welcomed Greater Manchester Mayor, King in the North and Stephen from New Order lookalike Andy Burnham into the virtual studio to hear about the difference between Westminster and politics as most people experience it and what it was like to learn live on TV that Boris Johnson was putting Manchester into tier three lockdown. Westminster makes a fraud out of people. It took me a long time to work that out, but it does. You know, when you're kind of trapped in the whip system of Westminster, it's not surprising is that the public kind of have no real sense of what the individuals in there sometimes are all about. So it's been liberating for me, honestly. And uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel I'm happier as a mayor than I was as an MP or a minister. And that's why you've just launched your re-election campaign as mayor of Greater Manchester. What, what are you going to do differently uh, if you're successful in term two than you managed to achieve in your first term? Well, I'm going to have quite a big... Big commitments, actually. And I spend, as you might have noticed, uh, Ian, um, a lot of my time knocking at London. I don't knock London, actually. I love London, to be honest. Um, I spent a lot of my life there. It's more the way in which London has had things that we haven't. You know, and that's mm-hmm. the thing that obviously frustrates us. So uh, I'm. this is a compliment to London. I'm going to be committing to a London-style public transport system for Greater Manchester um, because that would be a game-changer for us. To have a situation where you can get off one of our trams and get on a bus and not not pay twice effectively, which is what we do at the moment, you know, a daily cap and all of that kind of stuff uh, would be a sniffing each other's armpits on the commute, rammed in <laughs> like flooding. Well, this is it. We'll actually we'll actually talk to people on the commute, Ian, and like you, know, you lot, we're just staring <laughs> staring each other out on the tubes there. But I can't help but people feel. have a laugh on the trams, even if they are crowded. I just sort of feel that as like a monarchy supporting Londoner, I'm going to have a really fucking difficult podcast today. That's the impression that I'm getting so far. First up, let's go back to that moment when you found out on live TV that Manchester would be forced into tier three lockdown with a financial package that was 43 million less than you were asking for. Tell us how that felt and what was going through your head. So it, there was a long build up um, to, to that moment. If, I, if I'm honest, it began with a meeting on, it was a Monday of a couple of weeks before where a group of mayors were presented with the first plans for regional tiers and we knew we were going to be in a high tier and we didn't resist that because you know, our case rates were high. But I was saying to the government, you're going to have to have a proper support regime for these regional tiers. And to be honest, at that point, there wasn't even any support uh, going to be coming for the uh, regions going under tiers. And I was in touch with Matt Hancock that week, that week saying, you know, are you making progress on support? Because, you know, we can't support this without without support. And eventually, I mean, I, I, then there was a Times headline that said pubs will shut across the north. I don't know if you remember remember that. And that yeah. caused a massive 
backlash. Then I went on question time in a bit of a bit of a mood, saying, "Look, I'm not. We're not just being treated this way. If there's going to be restrictions, we need support." And then finally, on the Friday um, after that, the government said that they would have a 67% furlough. And, and it had been 80% up to that point? Yeah, and bear in mind, we were talking about people working in pubs, bookmakers, people driving taxis, low-paid people. It might be all right for people, you know, on perhaps our salaries to live on 60%, 7%. But if you work in a pub, it's not possible um, because your wages won't cover your rent and you will be in severe hardship. So it was a point of principle. And I made it clear to the government it was a point of principle. And I said, you know, pay a full furlough, have a full self-employment income support scheme, and then we will support it. And they just wouldn't, and they wouldn't move. And I, and I it was, you know, things progressed. They still wouldn't move. We got to the morning of it. And I said, look, Give me enough money so that I can top up the furlough, and that's it. That's fine. We, we will do. We will do a deal. They wouldn't move. Prime Minister came on the phone, and I said to him, "You know, do you realise we've been in effectively what are called tier two restrictions since July, which are you know those restrictions on gatherings in the home, and that has choked off footfall in our restaurants, and you know we've been damaged already. We've had no support. Can we have support? No." And that's how it unfolded. So there were those who kind of claimed I sort of manufactured that moment. Honestly, nothing could be further from the truth because I started out by saying to the government, you know, let's make these tiers work. And and really they wouldn't and didn't listen. And um, hence we ended up in that position. Um, and what do you think it says about the government's attitude to the north of England? Well, they, just, they think they can get away with things here that they wouldn't dare try in London because London went into tier two later that very same week, if you look back. And immediately, the issue of tier two costs was on the table, immediately. And I tweeted that night, I hope they're going to backdate this money. And they had to. And I just, honestly, I I mean, I look back on it and and think, I don't regret any of it because the point of doing the job that I do is to, you know, I I said when I left Westminster, I'm not coming in in it actually to do the sort of point scoring thing. If the government do something right, I will say that and I'll praise them. If they do something wrong, I will call them out as loudly and as effectively as I can. And I've stuck by that. And I, I, as a point of principle, they were wrong on this in terms of the way they were they were treating people. Yeah, in fact, they'd actually shut pubs in Bolton in the summer overnight without any compensation for the people or the businesses. And I said, well, we're not, they're not doing that again. So we kind of built to that moment. But I, I, I mean, I'm mean, not meaning any offence in Ian's direction here, but would they have done what they did to us to London? And the answer is no, they wouldn't. And ultimately, if devolution to the English regions is to mean anything, mm. it does require people like me to be prepared to say, well, we're just not having that. And we're going to, you know, if you're not going to change, we're still going to call you out on it. Just to finish this segment, it's time for a quick fire questions round, Andy. Oh, Are you ready? puts you fear ready? into my heart, I have to <laughs> right. say, but there we go. <laughs> Rapid reaction. Right. Wayne Rooney at Everton or Wayne Rooney at Manchester United? Oh, Everton. Absolutely. The young Wayne Rooney. <laughs> Tony Wilson or Harold Wilson? Oh, well, that is a really good one. I, I, I met one of them on many occasions, so it's going to have to be Tony Wilson because I, I love the man. <laughs> Les Dawson or John Bishop? John Bishop, 100%. Joy Division or Echo and the Bunnymen? Joy Division. <laughs> The most terrifying words a politician could hear this year were, I've got Pippa Carrera on the phone. She wants a word. Have you got a minute? 
The Mirror's political editor was behind some of the biggest scoops of 2021, and she joined us in April to talk about government scrutiny and somebody called Allegra Stratton, how little we all knew back then. But first, here's Alex talking about one of the more noxious events of the year, the PPE procurement scandal. Alex, Johnson has a casual relationship with the truth. (laughs) This kind of graph, though, seems to cut through with the public in a way that, say, lying about the Irish sea border hasn't. Why is that? Well, I mean, different stories have different cut through. And that's because, you know, not everyone pays the same level of attention to the ins and outs of politics. And so the subjects which are easy to summarize in a couple of sentences always have better cut through. Something really complicated like the Irish Sea border, you will always struggle to get, you know, people to look at a a headline and care about it and read on. But that isn't to say these stories don't matter, you know. I hear from uh, friends who are looking into focus groups that uh, sleaze is beginning to come up unprompted in almost all of them last week. Uh, and, And the Tories, I think, will be really, really terrified of that because once the idea is lodged into the public's head that these people are out for themselves and they're shysters, it's incredibly difficult to shift because then every cock-up is interpreted through that malignant prism and everything seems seems to confirm it. But the other point is that, I, I, I mean, I know it feels like 2020 lasted a decade, but we are essentially still in the honeymoon period of a prime minister who isn't even a third of the way through his term and won a huge majority, which means that a lot of floating voters will still be reluctant to admit that, yeah, I really fucked up with my vote. But often that change is not a curve, you know, it's a tipping point, a sort of build-up that reaches critical mass and then the seesaw simply reverses position with a thud. It feels like the law to prevent this kind of cronyism is there. I mean, you're supposed to have a civil servant in the room when discussing government procurement, for example, Mm. but it's ignored. So do we need new laws or is this about enforcement? And on that, of course, to say that, Johnson may claim now that he did whatever was necessary at the time, but the fact that there was a crisis in March did not prevent him from going to a civil servant in May and saying, take this phone and log all those messages and calls so that they're on public record that this conversation happened. We need a new system of compliance. The rules are there, but the government is allowed to ignore them. The person responsible for assessing breaches of the ministerial code, says a minister bullied her employee, and instead of her going, he goes, because the PM just disagreed, and he still hasn't been replaced. I recently spoke to a number of journalists working on these corruption stories for a daily that's coming out later this week. Every single one complained about freedom of information requests taking months to be answered and often being ignored. Maybe people Pippa can confirm that. Judicial review is under assault. The ministerial code has come to mean nothing. And and that's the problem, that the system relies on everyone behaving in a decent way. And when they get caught, to say, I put my hands up. And this lot just aren't doing that. Pippa, is that your experience with FOIs, that they don't get answered? 
Yeah, I mean, some do eventually, and it's not very helpful. But it does feel that while governments have always been sort of slightly dragging their feet on providing information that they're supposed to, this one's been particularly bad. And, you know, I mean, there's sort of a series of areas where it feels that they they're not possibly being as transparent as they might be. I mean, another recent example we've had in the lobby is phone calls um, to, in, to other leaders. I mean, somebody mentioned MBS earlier, but more sort of recently than that, there was a, a series of calls to European leaders during the, if you remember, the row over over um, over vaccines um, and uh, export bans. Uh, and we we asked about it, about whether they've been calls. It wasn't even a case of them not volunteering. We were told that there haven't been any to report. And then, you know, there was a, a leak and and somebody reported that in fact there had been I think it was three or four with European leaders which we haven't been told about <laughs> and, we, and number 10 said well these are private calls and it's like well I'm sorry but if you're acting as prime minister of a country on official business there was no way that's a private call I mean, maybe if you're calling up Angela Merkel to wish her a happy birthday you can get away with it but not if you're dealing with something which is potentially so key and an issue of such public interest and there's been a few things like that you know sort of the feeling there's a lack of impunity. I mean, you mentioned Pretty Patel there, but but there's been a few cases of journalists being attacked or or criticised by by ministers. Uh, most recently, Jacob Rees-Mogg using privilege of the parliamentary chamber to attack a Huffington Huff Po journalist and, and getting his facts wrong. And number ten, absolutely refusing to row back on it. There's been other examples. It just does feel that they're prepared to act with impunity. That if they feel that they can get away with it, then they will. But this sort of culture of doubling down and never accepting that you're wrong is going to stay. And that comes back to Boris Johnson and his attitude. He hates apologising. He hates admitting he's done anything wrong because he sees it as a sign of political weakness that he thinks his opponents will hold against him forevermore, rather than recognising that actually many people see it as a sign of humility. The only apology we've had from him is over the, the pandemic and the amount of people that have died because he couldn't do anything but, really. But on anything else, you know, you'll struggle to get any sort of note of contrition, remorse or reflection out of him. And, you know, I think that makes him lack a common touch. We're told that he's sort of, you know, man of people in touch with how people feel. But, you know, in my mind, that's uh, that's a big gap for him. Last year, there was much excitement among journalists at the news that Allegra Stratton would be hosting daily US-style press briefings in a Swiss new room flanked by Union Jacks. They spent £2.6 million on the room and £125,000 on Stratton, but after her debut was postponed, again and then again, it's been announced that she won't be hosting them after all. Apparently, we the public have enjoyed hearing from Johnson, Hancock and the rest, and we don't want to substitute. Piffer, I suspected Stratton was hired initially because Johnson was floundering in front of the press and, like Trump, he realised someone else could do better. Has he actually got any better at press conferences since? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by better. From his point of view, not answer, not answering the question, then probably yes, he's got he's got better. But from the rest of the world's point of view, the journalists asking the questions and the public looking for the answers, then definitely not. I mean, I have to say it wasn't a huge surprise when they scrapped these briefings, which hadn't actually ever started. I think right from the off, we'd all anticipated this moment. I think it was a, a misjudgment by Number Ten initially into thinking that this would enable them to control the agenda more, to kind of bypass the media and go straight to the public, having seen how receptive people were to tuning in 
at five o'clock in the afternoon to the daily COVID briefings in the, in the first lockdown. They thought, oh, well, we'll have a bit of this and this would be great. We could beam ourselves into people's living rooms to talk about all sorts of other issues. Of course, it doesn't quite work like that. And um, anybody who had the pleasure of listening to a lobby briefing would very quickly realise that actually they show everything warts and all. So, you know, just as the government might get its moment, or like a Stratton, it would have been get her moment to sort of big up what the government has done in a particular area or a bit of investment or whatever, so too it would show all the awkward bits, the questions that they weren't able to answer, the sort of slightly, how, how shall I put it, the slightly sort of, you know, being pushing the truth as far as they can in some of the answers, the evasions, the, the sort of constantly answering different questions than those to which they've been asked. And and the public would probably think that those moments weren't quite so impressive and that um, there, were, there were sort of proper questions there for the government when it came to to sort of transparency and openness that, that, that weren't being addressed. So I think the realisation that actually um, it wasn't necessarily the, the great coup that they thought it might be and that these briefings are can, can go badly wrong as often as they go right from a government's perspective um, finally convinced them that actually they probably weren't that good an idea in the first place. One of the most enjoyable guests we had all year long was the comedian Sarah Gibbs, who's written for Have I Got News For You, Dead Ringers and The Mash Report. In her memoir, Drama Queen, she talks about being diagnosed with autism and how her life made more sense in some ways afterwards. She was brilliant company and we'd love to have her back on. If you're listening, Sarah, check your inbox. Here she is with Naomi, Ian and fellow guest Gavin Esler. Now, you told the Jewish Chronicle uh, that you'd, I love this, by the way, that you'd been misdiagnosed as Jewish. Um, your former <laughs> Jewish family in North London. And, and I know exactly what, like, as soon as I read the sentence, I knew what you meant, you know, because my Jewish family are like that too. Like the directness uh, that, that comes with, with that kind of culture. Um, how much of our awkwardness around autism do you think might just, be down to the fact that like you know that that kind of white anglo-saxon protestant englishness of of you know many people just can't deal with uncomfortable things head on yeah i think we have a veneer of politeness here things are wrapped up in in you know uh like a neat little language that is really hard for autistic people to speak i did spend some time in israel when i was in my 20s and i spent some time working there and it is night and day because it's such a blunt culture there where, you know, um, for better or for worse, you know, I would say something and people would like, Sarah, die, which doesn't mean what it means in English. It means stop enough. Um, but, you know, um, <laughs> they weren't just being awful. They would just tell you straight up, if you were being annoying, you'd just be told to shut up. Um, you know, and, you know, one of the first things you'll be asked if you meet an Israeli is like, how much do you earn? There are no boundaries. And so it's a lot harder to cause accidental offense or to not put on the right airs and graces, you know, there, I, and also I think there is quite a prevalence of autism as well in the Jewish community. We don't talk about, you know, I think it is, there is quite, there are quite high numbers that have the statistics to hand. So maybe there is some sort of cultural neurological crossover. I'm not sure. You said you're not a spokesperson for autism, but do you think the government has given enough or any consideration even to autistic people or even those suffering from things like serious anxiety during the pandemic? And and if not, what should they have done? 
I think we have been used in a way that is quite cynical. I think um, by in a, in a sort of culture war, in a way that by people who never have our best interests at heart, suddenly say, "Well, I don't have to wear a mask because you know I might have a special, like you know, I might have something different about me. I might have a hidden disability, or whatever." And um, and it's so incredibly cynical that we are being used for people who just can't be bothered to put on a mask. That's upsetting. I mean, I'm not sure about you know specifically in the pandemic, but I did. Um, I did put this question out to Twitter about what could the government be doing for autistic people because I felt like it was just too big a question for me on my own. And the overwhelming results that I got back were, first first of all, better and faster access to diagnosis because getting a diagnosis on the NHS is a nightmare. It is years of waiting and it is GPs who don't have adequate training writing people off at the point of contact saying, oh, you can make eye contact. You can't possibly be autistic. You know, you're married. You can't like, wait a minute, you're worthy of love. You can't you're possibly be autistic. Yeah, <laughs> All of that. Exactly. Um, you know, so it's very difficult. So, you know, examining those processes and trying to speed up diagnostic waiting times would be amazing. Autistic-led policy on things like access to work and protections in the workplace. One activist, Pete Warmby, said that he would like to see current legislation, um, the Equality Act, being more specifically worded because he feels it's too vague to protect autistic people. Um, better understanding of autistic people in, in the public sector, better training, which always has to be autistic-led, hiring more autistic people, more training in government schools, um, in the police, especially when it comes to handling autistic meltdowns and, and identifying that and not treating autistic people like a danger to themselves or others if they are just overwhelmed and autistic meltdown is not involuntary thing. I'm talking really fast because I've got a lot to get in. People had a lot to say. Working with the correct assumption that autism is for life rather than making people reassess their disability allowance every, I don't know how often it is. I've never, I've never um, uh, sought allowances. I've been very lucky, but for anyone seeking benefits or services, not to have to constantly reassess because you are autistic forever. And the same assumption that you are not going to be abandoned by services the minute you turn 18, you are still autistic. And also um, people have called to ban harmful behavioral therapy like um, applied behavioral analysis because they have been linked to a lot of trauma in autistic people who've been through them so yeah people had I mean there's so much there's so much that still needs to be done for autistic people and understood. Sarah I want to ask you about writing political satire. I loved your comment at the start about how do I make this funny and I could understand trying to do it day after day after day. But isn't the other problem that the government itself is the kind of slapstick government if you, I mean, of course we have to take it seriously, but it is very difficult in the era of Trump and Boris Johnson doing a kind of competition to be Lord Farquaad from Shrek <laughs> with their funny kind of comments uh, to, to, to compete with that kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'd love to pretend that it was, you know, it was really easy and we're all geniuses. I mean, so there were some real geniuses in those writers' rooms who just somehow took the news every week and made it hilarious. I don't know how they did it. But, you know, it was really hard because, I mean, I'll, I'll probably get to this later um, when we talk about underrated things, but it is really hard to you have this accountability to not um, make these horrific, selfish, nasty, you know, heartless people seem like harmless buffoons. You, 
And it's really easy to do when you are overworked and tired and working for five different comedy shows and just trying to find a new angle on things. It is really easy to neutralize these people when you're trying to skewer them. I mean, it was hard and um, I'm not going to pretend I led the charge there. I very much followed the lead of writers with a lot more experience than me and I learned a lot from them on how to do that, but it was not an easy process. Do you need to be a politics nerd for this i mean how much of a politics nerd are you is it, is it could it be any sort of subject matter it's just that current affairs has a, a sort of market for the satire or do you actually really need to be like deeply invested in this stuff to be able to make good gags about it middling i would say that you need to be <laughs> right in the middle because if you are a politics nerd and you're over invested and i had that problem because i am a bit of a politics nerd or i certainly was mm. i have had a little bit of a restaurant i turned off at the beginning of my, the pandemic all of my notifications and all i don't follow it as obsessively anymore because it was just it was just so bad for my mental health um and after you know four years of really intensively watching everything unfold and watching everything unfold on twitter and all the discourse and it gets so toxic mm. i think if you are so invested in it that you're following every utterance of every politician then you are not on the level of the lay person who's watching the news who is mm. aware of things but isn't necessarily obsessively aware and so you're not going to be looking for the angles that have cut through you're like oh look at i remember <laughs> i kept pitching this sketch over and over and over about jeremy corbyn signing apples and people are like <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> what do you mean signing apples i think like, no you know that bit in that vice documentary where he signs some apples it was hilarious like sarah nobody else knows what you're talking about <laughs> Um, there's other you know there's then there's the other extreme where people come into these writers rooms you know from other like non-political backgrounds and they just sink because they don't know what's going on but you know sometimes they come up with brilliant things because they're so detached from it that they see an angle that we're all you know it's all wood for the trees for us it is difficult to to find that balance um i think um I did have something really clever to say and I've completely forgotten what it is. So it's like replicating the writers from experience. Um, I'll say it in a minute and then one of the men can repeat it louder. And then we'll it. Uh, just for the record, I, I want to take that role. So if you can just whisper it whenever you come up. Is it quite difficult to distinguish between the comedy programs in that respect? So, I mean, is something, have I got news for you gag is very different to a mash report gag that is very different to a mock the week gag. I, or, or can you, I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that you said that there's a small pool of writers. So what that means is the same people are writing basically all of the current affairs satire shows, but I'm guessing uh, they're writing in different ways for different shows. Yeah, not all of them. I mean, it is, it's a small pool in Radio 4. And uh, uh, that's, that's what I was going to say. Co coming back to um, what you're saying about, is that the only route in to comedy? Yes, that is the only, like in this country, pretty much, um, unless you are a performer, that is the only way into comedy writing um, is to go through Newsjack and then to sort of work your way up through the Radio 4. I mean, there are other routes and there's self-publishing and there's all sorts of things, but that is, that is the main traditional route. Um, so that is why there's a small pool. Um, it's because, you know, by the time people have been weeded out, you know, in the first few years, I think people either get knackered from it or they love it and they, they really thrive on it and they do well. But Have I Got News For You actually does have a distinct team of writers. And while there are people like me who come in for trial days or, or you know, get their credit on it, it's own sort of self-contained thing. In the Radio 4 circuit, you will go into writers' rooms and see the same thing. You will know everyone mostly i mean it's very rare that i'll go into a radio for writer's room and not know more than one person
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One of our most impactful and sobering editions of the year featured Johnny Calvert and George Arbuthnot from the Sunday Times Insight team talking about their stunningly powerful book, Failures of State, the inside story of Britain's battle with coronavirus. It is the most incredible and damning read. As Johnny Calvert told us, scientists were clear to us that the first wave of COVID might have been understandable, but the second and third were absolutely unforgivable. Johnson knew what he had to do, and he didn't do it. This is quite a long clip. It starts off with a regular panel telling us about the local elections in May, and then we move on to George and Johnny Calvert on failures of state. Tuesday saw the first Queen's speech in Parliament since the pandemic began. When the big stories are, as you said, the abolition of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, the introduction of voter ID and protections for free speech in universities, is this a government with a real vision for the country or just a vision for its own power and pet obsessions? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you have a country that's just been through what we've been through and it's crying out for change in all kinds of areas. (laughs) where some university students have lost half the in-person teaching for their whole degree now, and you decide instead to make it harder, not easier for universities to invite controversial speakers to events. It's going to make it harder because the university will be liable for for all kinds of how to compensate them if they then don't host them. It's almost as if this government is actually afraid of the task ahead of it and is locking in its power because they know the vaccine bounce can't last. And there's also an element of the conjuring trick at the moment, because you're giving social freedoms back with one hand and you're taking away civil liberties with the other. It's very sly. It's very clever. It's very frightening. Ian Dunt is editor at large at politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Will Davis, a former Bunker Daily guest, very good commentator, points out that 0.09% of uh, speakers at universities faced a problem with no platforming, and 0.00005% of votes at the last general election were fraudulent. Is there any evidence at all that voter ID is necessary and not an attempt to, I suppose, suppress uh, the kind of voters that, that that annoy the government by voting Labour. No, 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 no. There isn't. No, there isn't. So, I mean, in 2018, there was council elections, um, and it accounted for three percent of alleged electoral sort of offences, which adds up to eight cases. Um, seven of those resulted in no action, and one of them was resolved locally. So, then go forward to 2019. You got the general election. 32 million votes counted in that period. Not a single fucking case of in-person voter fraud. The European elections, you might remember, was the same year. I mean, I don't know if everyone's just so traumatized by the recent events of our lives, but the, the elections were that year. And there were two. There was a bloke who voted for himself and, and his son. Um, and there was another one who gave his father's name. Uh, so the first bloke was fined and he was banned from voting for five years. And the second was given a police caution. So... You know, it's you know to, to look at that situation and go, oh, we've got this terrible problem with with in-person voter fraud that we really need to address. Um, takes uh, quite a lot of imagination. But the thing is, across that Queen's speech, across all those bills, mostly they deal with problems that don't exist. 
Like it's the same thing for the for the fucking fixed terms parliament act, right? I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers, but there was an election in 2017 and there was another one in 2019. Now neither of those things should have been possible under the fixed terms parliament act, but they were because ultimately you're never really going to be in a situation where the opposition party fights you too much on this stuff. The same if you look at the policing bill which is being carried through, you know, there is no problem with noisy protests. Protests are noisy and people get that. When the government had to defend it in Parliament, what they said was, oh, well, you know, we've, we've got to deal with Extinction Rebellion shutting down printing presses and trains. You think, well, that's not what this fucking bill does. This bill says they're not able to make any noise. And you see the same with judicial review. They're trying to reform judicial review. They put a, a panel that they fucking picked the members of, in a desperate bid to get them to say, oh, the, the, the judges are overgoing their constitutional bounds again. And in fact, the panel said exactly the opposite. When there, there, there really is no substantial problem here at all. And they're going to go for judicial review anyway for reform of it. So in each case, the problem doesn't exist because we're too used to thinking that the problem the government is trying to fix is a problem that exists in the actual objective world. But it doesn't. The problem that they want to fix is that young people and ethnic minorities don't vote for the conservatives. So they're going to try and dissuade them from being able to vote in the first place. It's the protesters exist under Black Lives Matter, under Extinction Rebellion, and they want to shut them the fuck up. It's the judicial review, and in particular, the instances in the Supreme Court that have ruled against the government is a threat to executive power. So they want to close them down. And the Fixed Terms Parliament Act offered just a fucking smidgen of power to Parliament over what the government does. So they want to clamp that down. That's the fucking problem is that they don't feel that they have all the power in the world yet. And that's really the problem that those bills are intended to address. Um, Ross, let's talk about some of those results that got overshadowed by the nonsense. Um, Mark Drakeford triumphed in Wales, just one seat of Labour's first ever majority in the Senate, as I now know it is pronounced, Um, (laughs) while former Plaid leader, again, a learning curve, um, Leanne Wood lost her seat. Um, Drakeford's hardly a, a charisma machine, with respect. So what does he have that, that Starmer doesn't? Is it just the Welsh or is there something else? <laughs> well, Drakeford has been in charge of something, which Starmer is not, apart from the implosion of his own party. But he's been he's been actually making decisions about lockdowns. It doesn't you know, it doesn't seem to matter in this pandemic which decisions you are making or whether they're any good. It's just that you're on TV all the time <laughs> making them. I mean, you'll recall Wales had a circuit breaker last autumn, which Starmer mm. was also calling for. Didn't really work, actually. I don't think a circuit breaker, it was just too short at that point in the pandemic with infections so high. But it made Drakeford look decisive. And you have to wonder at this point whether Starmer's tactic of constructive opposition was a mistake, is a mistake, or whether you actually only reap the benefits of standing up noisily to Westminster if you Mm. have local powers to deploy. And he was always bound to fail to cut through because he was so powerless and had so little exposure. And Labour won mayoral elections in London, Greater Manchester, Bristol, Cambridgeshire, West Yorkshire, but failed uh, to unseat the Tories in the West Midlands and Tees Valley. Looking at the sort of pattern here, do you think these are local stories more than national ones? You know, it's it's the candidate. It's not always the incumbent uh, that won here, but, you know, that it's the candidate, not the party. And, the, and is there anything that the kind of national party can pull from the success of people like Sadiq Khan and, and Andy Burnham? It's difficult because during the pandemic, we've had a lot of time to look around the places we live, many of us. I mean, spend time in places like local parks and playgrounds that maybe we didn't go to so much before because we didn't have the time and we had other things to do. People on furlough and forced to exercise locally, you know, have been out and about a lot more looking around their neighbourhoods and thinking about what's good and bad about them. 
and places have effectively been pitted against each other with the tier system as well. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the effect that has had. And then locally, you've got places like Cambridge and Bristol, which are becoming more Labour and becoming more green, partly because the Lib Dems are such a feeble, feeble force at the moment, and partly because they have younger populations who are less receptive to Johnson's brand of populism. But I mean, you look at Andy Burnham, especially, who's done very well, exceptionally well in the elections, in harnessing a sense of resentment against London, which is the flip side, actually. I mean, some would say it's the healthier side, but it is the flip side of the anti-Southeast, anti-liberal elite feelings that the Tories have already been nurturing. And you should note that Johnson has noticed that and is again banging on about levelling up, not needing to leave your town to get a skilled job, this kind of thing. The question, the really difficult thing is how much metro mayors and local councils can actually do locally when they're so hamstrung financially. Are they basically going to be dependent on Whitehall sending them free ports and outposts of the treasury and new infrastructure and stuff like that? Are they actually going to have the powers to change their neighbourhoods if they're not members of the party in power? Because the Conservatives have already shown that they want to reward Tory voting towns at the expense of other ones. Is that going to continue? Will they realise? It looks great, these local wins, but I worry about how much non-conservative parties will be able to do on the on the ground and final bit of good news labor made local council gains um in some surprising places like chipping norton uh, david cameron's backyard and parts of kent do you think sort of pundits and indeed labor itself are they paying enough attention to, to labor's advances or just dwelling on its losses labor is kind of in mourning at the moment I mean, the problem for Labour is that these gains have not been where they want them and where they really care about them. Their grip on people who used to be called C2DEs, basically, it's weakening. It's nearly gone. It's a, As a party, they don't want to know what to do about that because the Labour Party has always thought of itself as a champion of the workers and the underdog. They tolerated people like Peter Mandelson, who's popped up again this week. They didn't love them. They never loved them. It's an existential crisis for Labour when these put people put their faith in Johnson. And that is the fundamental thing of what the Labour Party is currently trying to get come to terms with. These people don't like them. They don't love them anymore. But they're the whole raison d'etre of the Labour Party. So what do they do now? Yeah, I can't it, believe Roz just used a French accent for saying <laughs> that. was shocking. A shocking moment in this podcast. Very Romani. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I only have a master's in French literature. I can't help it. <laughs> How will that go down well in Hartlepool? Not very well. <laughs> On February the 6th last year, your editor came to you and said, coronavirus is the new Brexit. You knew how dangerous it was. So did many of the scientists that you talk about. I mean, I suppose this is the, the, the question of the, of the whole book. Why was the government so slow to take it seriously? Is it, is it, is it sort of lots and lots of different factors? Or is, is, is there one that sort of, do you think, explains this kind of weird heel dragging? Well, I think, I mean, we, we, we thought we had the kind of the best pan, pandemic planning in the world, didn't we? And we kind of were... We were quite relaxed about it, but the warnings were coming in in January after people had seen what had happened in, in Wuhan, and, I, and we had a government who were kind of completely distracted by the debate that had raged through, you know, kind of three years or so over Brexit, and finally there'd been the election, and 
and finally Brexit was going to going to be delivered and and that was that was the focus of the government and they'd completely taken up their eye off the ball of a, a possible pandemic which was listed as the um, number one threat to national security but I we also I think would say that you know part of the problem was was down to the personality of the the prime minister he's he was a person who um who just doesn't believe in the kind of um and he said it on in a speech at the beginning of february he re- described the pandemic as as an irrational panic uh, over over it he didn't believe it was a real threat in fact i mean he's previously talked about um his hero being the mayor in in the film jaws who leaves all the beaches open so the sharks can eat eat all the tourists because that's kind of that's the the right libertarian thing to do to help businesses etc we had a prime minister as we wrote at the wrote in the first article he'd missed all the key meetings of cobra the uh, the key national security uh, committee for disasters and nobody was on i mean you know given given you know the poor state of our pandemic planning as it turned out with you know without we had sufficient supplies of PPE, etc. We had no testing capacity to be able to test for this virus. We should have hit the ground running in in January, but we didn't really seem to wake up to it until March. Well, the book reminded me actually that, that that people like Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty were initially wrong about the efficacy of face masks, of banning mass gatherings, of the public stamina for a lockdown. Or Public Health England was was complacent about care homes. Could the government claim that it you know it was following the science, but the scientists were giving them bad information? I think there is a certain amount of truth at the beginning that, um, and, and, and I think especially true of the fact that they were they were following a kind of influenza uh, policy, which led them to believe initially they called it mitigate, but um, in effect in. It, it was it was herd immunity is what they were going for. They they believed actually that that there needed to be a certain amount of infections because otherwise there'd be it would be disastrous later in the year if nobody had uh, immunity. And I don't think that it, it's true that the government would were doing that and the scientists seem to seem to be roughly on side. But I think where the crux of it came was that when it came came to the middle of March. I think everyone suddenly, all the scientists suddenly realised there really was only one option, which was to lock down. And and a decision seemed to have been taken, but then the Prime Minister dithered and delayed for another kind of 10 days or so, um, nine or 10 days. And in that time, you can see it from the back modelling, because the, the, the virus was spreading it was doubling every three days. It, it actually went up from something like 200,000 on the weekend, they took the decision to around about 1.5 million cases of infection in the, in the UK, and those those crucial last day, you know, when everybody else was locking down and we were late to lockdown by comparison, those crucial uh, last days are one of the reasons why we suffered the highest death rate in the first wave, and also our economy was hit higher than anyone else's. And the government made sort of further errors, as you explain, um, first by opening up too suddenly in the summer, then delaying further lockdowns in autumn and winter. Now, despite knowing what happened in March, despite being able to see, you know, even if they'd only read your article from April, you know, the cost, the human cost of delaying lockdown, why did they keep 
making the same, pretty much the same mistake that they had made uh, in February and March. Well, it's a very good, it's a very good, good, good question, and they didn't really need to read our article. I mean, uh, <laughs> when Boris Johnson came out of uh, out of was recu- recuperating from his illness and came back in late April, he actually he actually um, made a speech in which he he said that allowing infections to grow again would lead to a human and economic disaster. And so, and basically, he, he committed to keeping the R below one because he understood the point that that actually, if you allowed infections to grow, it wouldn't just be that a lot of people would die. It would also have to have a longer lockdown to get infections down, and that would be, cause worse damage to to the economy. But he seems to have been kind of pushed around from all sides. And when it came to, when it came to July July the fourth, Independence Day, or um, Super Saturday, as it became. Uh, against the advice of his own scientists, he decided to just kind of open everything up. And what's interesting about June, July the 4th is it's the, the one day uh, where the number of cases got down to 600, which was the lowest it got in the first wave. And and on the very day that we opened everything up, the number of cases started to grow again after going down all the way until July the 4th. They started going up again and by August uh, we were seeing huge rises in cases, and, and by sem- September, the, the situation was becoming really, really serious. And what seems the, 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 I mean, it wasn't helped either by the eat out to help out scheme, which the Chancellor was was pushing very hard, which kind of um, which we've seen studies um, which suggest caused a lot of extra infections. And then it came when it came to came to September, these scientists, you know, kind of Gove, Hancock, Cummings, were all saying to Boris, you've got to now uh, bring in a short lockdown just to nip this in the bud, and and otherwise it could be disastrous. And there was a crucial weekend in September in which Boris seems to have been persuaded by Gove and Hancock that, that, that a circuit breaker was needed. And he then has a conversation with Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and he seems to change his mind. And that weekend, they they bring in you know the uh, the scientists who who are not you know they've not you know sage. They've got about fifty scientists. They've got loads of them, but they don't bring those in. They bring three others in who who are all who all been espousing a, a kind of herd immunity style approach in which we kind of take it on the chin, as Boris had said once. And Boris changed his mind and decided that he believed that keeping he wanted to keep everywhere open, I think in the belief that somehow this would, would help the, the economy. But, but the problem problem with then allowing it allowing the, the virus to spread so much is that the case has built so, so much through late September, October, that there had to be a lockdown in November because it was just out of control. And that had to be a longer lockdown. And we ended up, you know, being in lockdown almost all, all of winter, really, which caused even greater damage to the economy. So it was, And more people died. And so we had the worst of all worlds. One of the best parts of doing the podcast is that we get to invite people whose writing we like uh, to come on and be our guest. The Independent's Tom Peck writes some of the funniest political sketches around, and he's very much your type of person, as regular listeners will know, and as this clip makes clear. Hold tight for the difference between COVID and Brexit on Conservative fortunes, 
and some quality Dominic Raab content. Now that Brexit uh, has happened, does the government really sort of care about about public opinion on on Brexit? Because it's still being, you know, still being polled. But will it hurt the Tories poll ratings if people, for example, can't have a turkey to play with at Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, the the, the, the chief executive of of Iceland said on said on the radio um, on, on, on Wednesday morning that Brexit already risks cancelling Christmas. I mean, what a genius. If there's one thing the British public can't cope with, it's the prospect of Christmas being cancelled. So it's a very, very, very successful attack line. I mean, Christmas feels like it gets cancelled earlier every year. Um, I don't know if it's t- sort of accidentally taken a knee on GB News or what have you. But of course, in, um, in, in, like in, in, in early December last year, well, when Dominic Cummings was at that select committee and said, you know, thousands of people died needlessly, um, he was sort of specifically referring to the very large numbers of people who died in the second wave in January. And that was, to a large extent, caused by Boris Johnson's absolute terror of there being a front page anywhere, particularly on the front page of The Sun, that could accuse him of cancelling Christmas. And if it gets to the point where, um, come December, parents can't get hold of their favourite toy for their kids or there's, there's some various bits of groceries that are not around... That, I imagine, will be something of a horror show for the government. But, of course, it will. Nobody wants to have their Christmas cancelled by COVID. But, of course, should that happen, there will be plenty of people who will creep out the woodwork who will be thrilled to have their Christmas cancelled by Brexit. Like the sort of people for whom, you know, in about 2018, when it became completely clear that there will be no sort of economic or living standards upside to Brexit, that then began to claim that, well, you know, that's why we voted for it. You know, like Giles Fraser, who... who who claimed in 2019 that um, that one of the best things about Brexit is that parents, well, children will now have to wipe their parents' bums for them, whether they want them to or not. And people will be so poor that they won't be able to leave their hometowns anymore. And, that, and, that, and that's a good thing. So, they, so if we have a sort of a, a crap Christmas, there'll be plenty of Brexiteers who will just say that, no, this is a real Christmas. This is what Christmas is really about. It doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're having to explain to your kids that um you know santa Santa does exist but unfortunately there's been a mix-up and he's given every single present to some boy who lives in an airfield in kent but they are working through it and maybe maybe he'll be here by april plenty of brexiteers who'll be who'll be fine with a sort of a a paired back shit christmas and they've gone so mad that they'll be vindicated by it well it's a piece about joseph and mary had to spend christmas in a manger without a turkey or a playstation 5 (laughs) and they were fine Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Now, Dominic Raab seems to have survived demands for him to resign over his refusal to return from his £40,000 holiday in beautiful Crete to manage the Afghanistan crisis. He has since posted a picture of himself being very stern on the phone. You say he didn't make a crucial phone call because he was on holiday, but there he is actually using a telephone. So, advantage Rob. As Foreign Secretary during COVID, he hasn't had much to do. Afghanistan was his first real crisis. Could he have managed it any worse? And why is he in the job in the first place? Um, Tom, let's start with the politics. Do you think Rob is a better or worse Foreign Secretary than the scruffy blonde fella who held the post from 2016 to 2018? I mean, what, what a question. I mean, it's sort of like <laughs> taking me down the alleyway that I used to... <laughs> I used to walk down an alleyway to school that was full of dog turds. It's like asking me which one smells the sweetest. I mean, I don't know how you can possibly answer it. Dominic Raab, as you've alluded to in your, in your question there, has had it sort of easy as a foreign secretary in the sense that 
He's been doing the job since June 2019. It's, it's a job that is principally based on foreign travel, and he's been locked down for three quarters of it. He has entirely failed in the very first thing he's been asked to do. But is he any worse than Boris Johnson? I mean, Boris Johnson's principal failure was that diplomats' words are expensive. Words matter. Diplomats don't necessarily do very much, but what they say carries weight. So there's a reason people do, people use the, the, the job diplomat has become a description of a way of being, being diplomatic, saying diplomatic things. And of course, he just couldn't prevent, he's a columnist, not a diplomat, and couldn't prevent himself from, you know, making jokes about dead bodies on the beach in Libya, which I, which I was there at, the weird conservative fringe event, and I sort of couldn't really believe what I'd heard. And Dominic Raab has not done anything like that. So, so, so arguably, he's been better. But then at the same time, he's had one thing to do, and he hasn't exactly done it. If you're asking me to pick which turd smells the sweetest, uh, possibly, possibly Dominic Raab. But I don't <laughs> think that necessarily, um, that necessarily sheds any light on anything to say that he's better than Boris Johnson was. I mean, there appears to be a briefing war within the government, with Rob saying Johnson was OK with him staying on holiday till Sunday, but other sources are saying he defied orders to come back. So do we actually know the kind of details of this situation? I mean, this, well, that really is the aspect that I just can't get over. There's two parts of the story, aren't there? Like On the Sunday, when he clearly should have come back, and there's now all this stuff about was he on a paddleboard or was he in his meeting, or no, he couldn't have been on a <laughs> The sea was closed. The sea was closed, exactly. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. I mean, uh, but... Maybe he shouldn't spend six hours coming back which in, you know, on an aeroplane traveling when it's a pressing crisis and he is foreign sector and he should be able to work from abroad regardless. And he's coming back to an office wherever there's been, that's been, not, everyone's been working from home from for, for 18 months anyway. Mm. But part one of the story is the sheer fact. You know, I am a political sketch writer, yeah? My job is to take the piss out of politicians. And I have lost count of the number of holidays and stuff that I have not been able to do because it's crucially important that I am at my desk <laughs> taking the piss out of these guys and they're on holiday. Like they're, they're the ones doing it, right? If you're, I mean, the deputy editor, so the political editor and the deputy political editor of The Independent can't go on holiday at the same time, right? And that is the same in any walk of life, any line of work. It doesn't matter what. If you're you know, the, the deputy chimney sweep and the chief chimney sweep can't go on holiday at the same time. And yet the prime minister... And the deputy prime minister are on holiday at the same time. Now, I don't like these stories in the summer where it's like, oh, this guy's on holiday. It's a disgrace because they do have to go. I don't mind people going on holiday. August Things happen in August and it's always an easy hit to see who's on holiday and who wasn't. But I don't think any on any occasion the PM and the deputy PM have been off on, off on holiday together. And more to the point, it's happened. And, and now they say, well, it took everybody by surprise. The, 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 the fall of Kabul, Right. The fall of Kabul was the end point of a march, right, which began a good 1,500 miles away over the border in Pakistan. I mean, was it Monty Python's? I can't remember. Was it Monty Python's Flying Circus, where for a while they had an introduction, which was some guy running from over the horizon, and then they'd cut something else, and then then they'd come back to him, and he'd sort of spend about eight minutes appearing and then suddenly be right <laughs> in the front of the screen. And it's, it's, it's like saying, well, oh my God, it's Monty Python's Flying Circus. Where are they going to start? They have no idea. They have no idea. Like they've literally marched. They've been committing murderous atrocities all the way along this march for 1,500 miles. And then here we are. Oh, shite, I'm in Crete. And it's taken me right by surprise. And it's the first thing I've had to do in nigh on two years. That is the bit that is incredible. I'm not so much bothered about when he did or didn't come back 
or the outer was he on the, you know, the, he doesn't really need to publish a minute by minute account of where he, whether he was on the beach at that point or in his hotel. Uh, room apparently he checked on his family and I quote, episodically. <laughs> this was, this was what he said. This was what he said on Wednesday morning. There was a delicious exchange with Michelle Hussein on Wednesday morning where he said, she said, uh, were you ordered by officials to come back? And he replied, my officials didn't order me to come back. And she said, were you ordered by any officials to come back? To which he replied, I won't add to speculation in the media. But I mean, I am inclined, and quite possibly wrongly, to not be too bothered about the specifics of that day and where he was and what he was doing. And I also slightly accept his explanation about why he didn't make that phone call to the Afghan foreign minister because it was already in the evening Afghan time and he prioritised getting the Brits home. That is a plausible case. And you can be Dominic Raab's biggest detractor, which I arguably am, but I've never heard anybody really accuse. He's got all sorts of... His main problem is he's got a suite of very poor quality opinions. But I don't think he's... I don't think anybody would really accuse him of being lazy because you frankly can't be as imbecilic as him and make it as far in life as he has by being idle. And he's not best with connections in the way his boss is. The fact that they were both away at the same time when this huge thing was quite literally, quite literally coming over the horizon and and we are where we are. Finally, never let it be said that we don't bring you the big hitters. David Gork was Conservative MP for South West Hertfordshire from 2005 until he was a victim of the Dominic Cummings purge just prior to the 2019 election. His crime being neither a fanatical Brexiter nor a nodding dog lobby fodder type who doesn't ask any questions. Here is David Gork in October, right after a stunningly complacent Conservative Party conference. David, like you say, the, the, the mood at the, uh, the conference seemed uh, rather sort of jolly and relaxed, certainly compared to Labour's last week. How was it during the, the sort of the Brexit wars? Did you have quite a kind of uh, a, a sort of chilly welcome in, in those later conferences? I wouldn't say jolly and relaxed would be how I characterise it. But to be to be fair, I mean, I, I went along to the party conference in 2019, having had the whip withdrawn. Um, but I thought I'd still go along and spoke at various fringe events. And my my contributions weren't um, particularly helpful or designed to be helpful for the for, for the government. I have to say, the response I got was pretty civilized actually it was it was it was um nothing like as hostile as i would have expected so i I think you know to be to be fair to the conservative party and its members i don't think they get quite as wound up as as the labor party does with each other at least that wasn't my experience I, i you know i found i could go there without being harangued even though i was you know very much the the enemy within or essentially the enemy without at that point you said that the traditional Tory values of low regulation, low taxation, being pro-business have been upended by the pandemic. Obviously, there are there are very strong practical reasons for that. How much of that is here to stay, do you think? Yeah, I think it is here to stay. I mean, I think it, it partly, I mean, it's not just the pandemic. I think even if we hadn't had the pandemic, I think there is a bit of a realignment going on in British politics. I think Boris Johnson in Bodies that, or at least has has recognised that, and 
So the focus is yes, being anti-woke and more nationalists, and, and less focused on economics, because the coalition of support the Conservatives have now is less based on economics. It's, it's in truth, less coherent on economics. It, you know, it covers people who've traditionally voted for left-wing parties, so it can raise taxes and spend it on the NHS, and most Conservative voters are, are absolutely happy with, with, with that. I think, to be fair, that's where wider public opinion is as, as well. It is changing, and I think, you know, because that's where the votes are, and the Conservative Party is very good at, at pursuing where the votes are. It can change itself, it can transform itself very quickly. It's part of the reason why it's normally in office and other parties aren't. Yeah, no, it's annoying. Um, <laughs> for me. Um, it's nice to me that Sunak is is popular, largely because he's done things that he didn't really want to do, um, which is sort of uh, handing out a lot of money, you know, to sort of help people through the pandemic. He obviously has more kind of um, austere inclinations. If he was allowed to do exactly what he wanted, do you think his star would fall? No, I'm not sure about that within the Conservative Party. I mean, look, I, I think you're right. He is a much more traditional Conservative. I thought his his speech was redolent of a, of a George Osborne speech uh, you know, from 10 years ago. He was making the case about fiscal responsibility. I think you know, even if you take a... a, a, a sort of fairly austere, fiscally responsible view, there was a very, very good case when the pandemic uh, happened to start spending money because what you wanted to do was avoid scarring and the economy would recover more quickly if you could protect it as much as possible. So I'm, I'm not sure that what he did as Chancellor from, from March 2020 onwards was necessarily against his will. I think it was a it was a sort of fairly pragmatic assessment that even if you are fiscally conservative, in those particular circumstances, um, you should start spending money. You should protect people from unemployment. You know, th- this is a sort of one off event, and you spend money to see us through that process, and then you have to unwind it um, relatively quickly. And I think, yeah, that and that's where he has been quite striking is that you know he's wanted to get a move on part of that i think is is electoral timing uh, you know you don't want to start the the rewinding process a year or so before a general election you want to have got that out of the way earlier on but i i don't think it's incompatible to be both fiscally conservative and believe that in exceptional circumstances you take exceptional measures and finally dominic Raab is in one of your previous roles at the department of justice um who's sort of prioritized the issue of violence against women following several other cases good said that misogyny is also bad when women directed against men bad what do you expect from him i think the Interesting thing with what Dominic will do is where he goes on human rights and judicial review. I don't think he's going to be a sort of particularly sort of knee jerk, hang them and flog them, increase sentences type of justice secretary. I don't think that's that's actually where he is. And you know, we've got Pretty Patel to do all of that. So, uh, um, and I think he's going to be in the position of having a bit more money to spend. I think. The MOJ will get more resources 
in the spending review. The early indications from what I can see is, you know, he is looking to reopen the Human Rights Act. I do wonder whether part of the reason Boris Johnson sent him there was because he felt that Robert Buckland was too small C conservative and not combative enough. And I do wonder whether this is going to become a, 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 a bit more of, ish, of an issue, given that the, you know, the judicial review reforms have petered out into not very much. And the report that I think was going to be published in the next month or so from, uh, from, from sort of Peter Gross, I suspect wasn't going to be that radical when it comes to the Human Rights Act. And I think that's where uh, Dominic Raab is going to get his teeth into this. And that's perhaps where he's going to you know, pick up some support on the right, positioning himself, um, you know, potentially quite nicely within the Conservative Party. Uh, and I think that that is going to prove to be a bit of a battle. And that's the end of Now That's What I Call Oh God What Now, our Cadbury's Celebration tin of the best of the podcast from this year. We hope you enjoyed it. Join us in the first week of January when we're back with fresh original content featuring all of your favourites. Coronavirus, Brexit, Boris Johnson's lies, and maybe a Doritos lasagna or two. I'm going back to the couch to rewatch Blair and Brown, the new Labour revolution. Bit of comfort viewing for me. To everybody listening from all the panel, we hope you're enjoying Christmas wherever you are. Have a good one and a safe and happy new year. Oh God, what now? It was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith. Ian Dunn, Ross Taylor, Dorian Linsky, Minnie Rahman, Gavin Esler, Nina Schick, and Alexandre. The assistant producers were Yolanda Sofronievich and Jacob Archbold. Our intern was Nat Amos. Audio production was by Robin Lieben and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs> Thank you.